0: Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets.
1: And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe.
0: I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Hi, Megan. Hi,
2: how's it going, Gary?
0: It's going really well. And you met Rocket.
2: Hi, Megan. Thank you
1: for giving us your time today. Of course. Thanks
2: for having me.
0: Yeah. Today we're speaking with Megan Knowlton. She's the Director of Sustainability at Optoro. And I love the mission statement, to make retail more sustainable by eliminating all waste from returns. Indeed. Megan sets the corporate sustainability strategy, and leads the ESG and impact reporting. She also manages the cross-functional sustainability council. Previous roles at Optoro, you were the leader of the diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. You co-developed Optoro's first DEI strategy and goals. She also managed and planned corporate diversity and inclusion engagement programs. Previous to that, she was a sustainability manager with uh, managed programs to enable retailers to reduce waste and CO2 emissions from returns. Previously, you were at Swire Coca-Cola?
2: Yes, Swire Coca-Cola, part of the Coca-Cola bottling system.
0: Yeah, I was once at Coca-Cola headquarters in of uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, that was an experience.
2: It truly is an experience. Like I got my start there, kind of yeah. intern at that complex. I'm from Atlanta originally.
0: Oh, ah, okay, that's nice. You must have lived on a street called Peachtree something.
2: It, right off, right off Peachtree. Come on, <laughs> everybody in Atlanta does. I think it's a rule.
0: So while you were at Aspire Coca-Cola, you were a corporate sustainability manager. You managed company wide sustainability performance metrics. And reported these through all levels of the company, including the ESG reporting. You were communications consultant at Duke University, Nicholas School of Environment, water sustainability intern at Coca-Cola, and you got your master's in water resource management from Duke University. Yeah. So that, Megan, welcome to Sustainable Minds. (laughs) Thank you. So how did you arrive where you are now? When you were a young person, was there anything that inspired you onto this path?
2: Oh my goodness. When I was a young kid, I think I just wanted to be in front of people. And I was kind of a theater kid. So I'm really happy to be on a podcast with you because now I just get to talk to people and they have to listen. And so, you know, kind of scratches the same itch. But I'd say really the path, as you said, I have a master's in water resource management, which is kind of funny because now I don't really do much with water at all. And so I guess just to kind of step back and tell you kind of how I got here, I started out in college studying environmental science. I knew that I wanted to do something about climate change and I didn't really know where to do it, but I knew that I was grossed out by studying living things. So I was like, okay, okay, okay. I have to do the physical side of climate change, which is cool anyway, because then you can look at air and water and carbon emissions and all of that good thing and weather and climate. So I started doing those studies and ended up falling in love with a field of study that's kind of a subset of geology called geomorphology. And that's the, basically the way the Earth gets its shape. And I just loved it. There was something about it. I think, honestly, it's because you get to just stare at pretty pictures of, like, the Grand Canyon and the Badlands and mountains and volcanoes all day long. And what I realized was, okay, it turns out all of the, the cool stuff I like pictures of was shaped by water. And... What's cool about water, too, is that it scratches another kind of itch passion of mine, which is the way that humans interact with the planet and the way that we make decisions and what the consequences are and and vice versa, planet-on-human interactions. So I ended up really focusing on water. I did some work in hydrogeomorphology. The way that water shapes the planet. Mm -hmm. And then went from there eventually, took a stint living abroad after college, ate a bunch of croissants, taught English, (laughs) wasn't sure what to do, went back to grad school to study water some more. And while I was there, I realized I don't want to be in academia at this moment. And the trajectory I was on was very academic. So it was a question of where does my personality and my passions, where do they fit? And I thought maybe corporate. So I locked into an internship with the Coca-Cola system doing water resources sustainability. And that was a good fit for me because I was getting my master's in water and their number one material issue is water because that's the main ingredient in all of their products. So I ended up working there and I loved it. And they do lots of really cool internal and external work in water stewardship and water conservation and sustainability. So I stuck around in the Coca-Cola system, moved to a franchise bottler based out of Salt Lake. So then I got to hang out in the mountains and go to the desert and eventually uh, was looking for the next thing and found an opportunity to explore a new side of corporate sustainability that I hadn't explored before, which is the retail industry. And so that's where I'm at now. I'm with a tech company called Octoro and we can get into that in a minute.
0: Yeah, we're going to in a minute. Yeah, but how lucky you are to have fallen in love was something that you can work at in yes. with your life's well, work, right? So
1: it's become mainstream. I mean, when you started, you had no idea,
2: <laughs> right? It was a growing field when I got kind of started in sustainability. Certainly, there were roles in it, but even just in the last few years, the the huge boom of sustainability. And when I got started, it was maybe called corporate social responsibility or social impact or something like that. And now I would say now it's really called sustainability though is morphing a bit into ESG while also being separate from ESG, um, which I'm finding fascinating. So I think just the evolution of the sustainability field itself is also a really interesting area to keep an eye on.
0: So I want to talk about Optoro, which was founded in 2008. And the two founders are still very much with the company. So I've got several questions here. I read somewhere on the website, more than a decade later, Optoro is still driven by the same ambition and vision to revolutionize returns to create more sustainable retail for years to come. At Optoro, you set the corporate sustainability strategy and lead the ESG and impact reporting what was the sustainability strategy when you arrived?
2: Ah, great question. So when I first arrived, there was already a sustainability program in place. My predecessor, Ann Staradai, who is really a wonderful person, very smart. She's still in the retail industry, moved on to a company I'm sure you've heard of out there called ThreadUp. So mm-hmm. she was here and she started up our kind of environmental sustainability program, And the very first, I would say, focus had been in calculating the sustainability value of our products and services for the retailers that we work with. So it was really in developing these calculations, these models that demonstrate the impact of Optoro's work as it cascades through the entire downstream value chain. And that's really to get at the root of Optoro's main value, which is in diverting products from landfill and reducing unnecessary transportation. So she had kind of put herself to get these calculations going. Over time, it evolved to really bringing Optoro to the market as a leader in thought leadership, in marketing, and research, on sustainability, on supply chains, on circular economy, When I joined Optoro, I'd say circular economy was becoming more and more popular. So I'd like to think that I can take a little credit for helping us better position ourselves within kind of this idea of circular retail, which has become a lot more popular in the last few years. I'd say the other piece too is in better kind of defining as a B2B company, better defining how we use sustainability in our sales language. And in our marketing language as well. As well as positioning Optoro directly in some cases as a consumer brand too. Trying to raise awareness among people in the U.S. Not that they are going to be able to buy Optoro specifically, but that they will be using returns through Optoro's network and systems. So if they can recognize the Optoro programs and use them appropriately and reduce waste in the supply chain because of the information that we've been getting out there, then that's really the goal.
0: I'm going to dig into that a little bit in a short while here, but I was really, I love this opening statement from your 2021 impact report from your founders, and it says, there's a lot here, it said, over the last year, we learned many lessons on resilience, humility, and how to navigate a continuously shifting world. So many of us are going through the same thing, right? But uh, what is, there's a lot in that statement. So break it down for me a little bit. What is many lessons on resilience? I know. What does that mean at our
2: That was one of our big themes we wanted to dig into a little bit in looking back on the year 2021. For us, It was both thinking about our employees, our communities, our friends and families navigating through the pandemic, navigating new ways of working, being a tech company that used to be pretty office-based with some remote employees, and then going almost fully remote, truly remote for a couple of years now we're back in the office kind of being hybrid so it was reflecting on that in terms of resilience how do we stay bonded as a company how do we help people feel like they belong how do we continue to grow as a company while also giving space to all of us who need it as we as we grieve and as we grow and form new ways of working and living The other piece of the resilience there, and really the part that goes into our work, is in building resilient supply chains during these giant supply chain blockages in the last few years and shutdowns and delays and logistics issues. And we work directly in that kind of sweet spot of logistics and tech and supply chain. So. One of the key places, it's funny, I guess, to take a step back, one of the ways that we've been really kind of amazed at where we're placed within the retail industry is that we're kind of seeing each and every trend through the pandemic as it evolves. So March 2020, it's early March Some people in the States are starting to wear masks, right? There's like maybe a couple places on the West Coast and the East Coast that are starting to lock down. We haven't yet in DC or at our flagship warehouse in Tennessee, and a tornado rips through middle Tennessee and crashes into our warehouse, many people's homes, many other warehouses and businesses, destroys our warehouse, all of the product and inventory in it. And of course, communities near us, people lose their homes. And we're suddenly getting all hands on deck. We have clients who are depending on us, managing their returns, clients who send their customers returns to us. We need a place for those returns to go. Otherwise, people won't get their refunds and they'll be out of money. So there's a real risk here and a real like human issue in terms of getting people their money back, right? So what? we're like, quick, get a new warehouse go out there. So it's all hands on deck. We're all taking time to build a new warehouse, find a new warehouse. Our founders are out there touring spaces. A bunch of us go out there. We're volunteering at soup kitchens and places like that. We're also literally hands on deck. I'm out there. We get a new warehouse and up and running in six days. I come out there like, you don't need the sustainability piece yet. Let me go buy you more trash bags and plug in your coffee maker. And at the same time, they're like, can you find any hand sanitizer? Can you find any masks? And we're like, no, what? What's happening? I fly back from there to my home because I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I'm about to not be able to get home. Lockdown the next day after I get home. This is 13th March, 2020, I think. And suddenly within a week, two weeks, we have so many clients and new potential clients reaching out saying, I've got 40 trucks stuck somewhere with inventory. I've got a dark store, all of this inventory stuck in the store. Nobody can go in. We don't know what to do with this inventory. We're losing money. Our employees are sick. Can't get stuff from abroad. So the first phase there, for us personally, it was a story of resilience in trying to get a new warehouse running, build it up, not just again, but better than before. And also in trying to achieve for our clients, help them keep their supply chains from getting way too rocked. And then over time, we're helping them resell inventory that got stuck. We help them turn around those truckloads and resell it. We help them get curbside drop-off of returns going so that people don't have to enter stores. We help them really lean into their digital strategies with online returns. And then throughout the next couple of years of the pandemic, we end up switching into really finding that there's this growth of retailers and brands now realizing how critical it is to have a very seamless, very convenient digital return solution, kind of full service solution. So we're busier than ever, but we really kind of came out of that having to learn how to shift easily on our feet and how to help them get their supply chains unstuck by digging into those products that were already out there on the market. Yeah, that's
0: a great story. I think about, God, talk about brand loyalty. Now I'm talking about your customers with you guys and all that you went through to fulfill what your promise was to your customers. I would, I would guess that the vast majority really appreciated all that efforts that you all went through at that time.
1: Well, to me, it also brings up how crucial collaboration is on so many levels in this new, uncertain world because nobody can do it just themselves, I mean, to really streamline and get that circular economy working in all of our, in ways that will be, benefit the planet as well as all the people. It takes a village. It takes collaboration with different companies and different levels of it all. You just don't think about it.
0: So I want to build off of what Rocket said. I want to talk about your business model, and some of the important things that you guys do, talk about the circular economy and what does that mean Your through, role through your vision of it, Optoro's role in it?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a good point to, that we need to kind of define what the circular economy is, both on this podcast and I would say as a society, as, yeah, a,
0: right, <laughs> as exactly. a world. A lot of conversation
2: about it a lot of conversation around what is a circular economy? Because the deeper you go, the more complex it gets. But if you stay at a thousand feet away, I think it is, to me, circular economy is a world in which we're able to get the products we need, use the products we need, create new ones without ever having to harness virgin resources or new resources from the planet. So the idea is products and materials circulating throughout the economy. And really it takes, as Rocket said, a fully collaborative economy, all industries working together, not just one retail industry working together, which is already difficult, but cross-industry collaboration as well. So the circular economy to me is still, it's a vision. It's a goal a series of goals. It's not yet a reality. And I think sometimes people will say, hey, we want to put this into the circular economy, or I want to do circular shopping. And language like that is a little misleading because nothing's fully circular yet. And it's not possible really for anything, any product to be fully circular yet. But to kind of explain where we see Optoro's role in the space, we, as I mentioned, we are a, a B2B business to business provider, we're a technology provider. So we have three core components of what we do. Uh, the first is what we call returns experience, it's a returns platform that brands or retailers surface to their consumers, to their customers online. And customers use that to initiate returns. They fill out information about why they're making a return. They send in the return to somewhere, they drop it off somewhere and they're told where to do that. They can drop it off at a staples store that will consolidate it with other products and send it to a hub so you can consolidate products together without being boxed and labeled. And then from there the retailer or brand can get really good information about why products are getting returned and which ones are. So they can make better decisions long-term for merchandising and for buying and for building and creating new products long-term. From that experience, from there, we move into where I really see a lot of the core of Optoro's capabilities, as well as, and in particular, our sustainability story, which is in returns management. So our kind of core area is in processing and making decisions about where returns go. So historically, traditional retail uses reverse logistics, right? Where they take products back from the market, from consumers. And that's not just returns. It can include excess inventory, unsold inventory, stuff that got pulled off the shelf because it got dinged or it was a sample. And so all of that comes back. It needs to go somewhere. But it ends up, Most often, at least traditionally, getting piled up in a corner somewhere. A good way to look at it is that retail supply chains are really good at the forward side of things. They're really good at making products, designing them, making them, shipping them, selling them. They're not so good at the return side of it. That's not what they're optimized and designed to do. So what we're trying to do is help retailers and brands get those products back. The returns, the excess, all of that. Get it back and then don't just let it sit there where it depreciates value. It becomes waste. Eventually, some of it sits there and it's out of season. And it's easier to either liquidate it at barely pennies on the dollar or often just to throw it out. And it's pretty amazing how common that is. So what we do is try to make it an automated process and a more efficient, thus cheaper process to process each and every return that comes in through the doors, as well as excess goods, create data on each product coming in, each unit coming in, and then to automatically using these handheld devices, allow receivers in the warehouse to automatically know what this product is going to go to next or where that product should be put, mm-hmm. right? So they're going to have a handheld device that says, oh, Okay, I just scanned this product that came in, and it looks like it's going to get returned return to stock. Okay, then it's telling me I need to go put it in that box over there with that barcode. And then the next person's going to take it and make sure that it gets put in the right part of the warehouse. And then it automatically lists back online and can get resold immediately or as soon as possible. Thus, trying to keep that product in season, get it moving as quickly as possible, Recover the most value for the retailer, which is really the name of the game when it comes to building Mm -hmm. these sustainability business cases, keeping it out of landfill. And then kind of the third piece of what we do that builds into what I've just been describing is the re-commerce side of things or reselling products that can't go back to stock or don't have some other business rules about them. Like it has to be recycled responsibly or it has to go back to a vendor who sold it to that retailer in the first place. So in those cases, when retailers are looking for a way to resell this inventory, maybe it's gently used or maybe it's low value, they may look to resell in bulk. And in those cases, we have our own marketplace online called bulk.com, B-U-L-Q, and that sells inventory by by the case or the pallet to kitchen table resellers is kind of how I like to describe folks. Though some are doing it full-time jobs, some are doing it as a side gig to make a little money. So it's all those folks you see on eBay or on Facebook Marketplace or any number of marketplaces online who have returned inventory or gently used inventory and they're looking to make a little money on it. And it's a great way to buy products for ourselves that kind of participate in that more circular economy, those products that have been kept in the market that already existed.
0: I love the business model. I love what you guys are doing. It's fantastic. So, I guessing you're relatively a young company and there's a lot of rapid growth. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of times founders have these great ideas and they they're really passionate and obsessed about this thing and they put a lot in focused on what that thing was and then they start growing and and growing. So, I got a couple of questions of How do you keep the wheels on this thing? I'm guessing this, every retailer wants to be using you. Maybe not everybody, but so (laughs) I'm kind of curious about the culture and what's the culture like today and where did, is it, where you, have you able, been able to evolve this to the place you want and does, is the growth a little disruptive for what you guys need to do?
2: You mean for us as a company or for the, yeah, the No, I'm,
0: Yeah, I mean for you as a company right now. I'm just kind of curious.
2: No, that's a great question. And I love kind of the peek under the hood. To I yeah. think it's so interesting right now to see how companies are dealing with, I mean, as we've already discussed, the, this changed world, right? I think I mentioned before the pandemic, we were, most of us were in person out of where I'm at right now, which is our, our headquarters in Washington, D.C. But now we're super spread out. A bunch of people are fully remote. We ended up hiring folks all over the place. Some folks are still here in the DC office. We held on to it. But that does mean that our internal culture has changed a little bit and that we're still kind of trying to identify what the new norm, I think, is going forward. I would say that one of the key places that many of our employees, both prior employees as well as newer ones, newer hires, have been really investing our time and interest in, has been in what you brought up, the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. I actually, so I used to be the leader of that committee here at at Optoro, and then I stopped. And then we had a little turnover, and the new leaders, it's a one-year term, and the new leaders left or one person left and then eventually another person left and you know over time they needed new leadership and so I stepped back into it so I'm actually back into being one of the leaders of our DEI work and one of the things that we're experimenting with doing is having not just these Zoom happy hours and these Zoom conversations but trying to create more meaningful moments of connection with each other that are more flexible. So what I mean by that is, instead of just expecting everybody to be an extrovert and to show up to a call and to talk, (laughs) um, we're trying to create opportunities for folks who might prefer having their video off or might not be that person to raise their hand and talk. But instead, can we have activities where you can still participate but you're kind of doing it solo and then maybe you type a few things into the Zoom chat so you can feel like you're getting something out of it, what you need out of it and letting everybody else who maybe does want to raise their hand, does want to speak up, can have their moment as well. And I think what we're trying to do here is really bring people back into feeling a sense of belonging with each other, even if we're not physically in the same space all the time. Though I will say that we do have, as I mentioned, we do still have our physical headquarters in D.C. So we regularly have essentially fly-in weeks now. Of course, pending COVID waves and all of that. So sometimes the timing has had to be adjusted or certain teams don't come in. But we do have fly-in weeks where we bring people in. We have healthy meals and rooftop happy hours and go to a soccer game and all of those good things as kind of COVID restrictions allow. And that has been, I think, a really great way to cement some of our feelings of goodwill and of belonging in the company.
1: Well, I would imagine that because the company is really was founded on a sustainability solution, the foundational elements that You're able to attract very true believers, and that isn't always the case when people have sort of reversed engineered a purpose and fit the sustainability story into that rather than it being core to who you are and feeling Energize the people wanting to be involved in that kind of a company because you're serving such a critical role. I think that the challenge would be sort of getting people to think about that it's something that you don't normally think about with consumer goods, that what you know, we don't really think about the whole return aspect and how that really contributes to waste um so the story of the company sort of making people think about those things is i could see 10 years ago when you were much younger people weren't thinking about sustainability in the same way in their everyday life they weren't feeling the impact of climate change, that it's become so real now. It's become much more imperative for people to think about every aspect of what they do with products that we never did before. But I would think that that you have a very energized workforce and you're easily able to recruit especially the younger generations, because they really want to be a part of something that is part of the solution to a better world.
2: That's entirely right. That's a keen insight and you're spot on. I'd say the sustainability mission and and value is probably one of our top recruiting tools that we have. I mean, other than all kinds of benefits and all of Mm -hmm. that, but it's especially, I'd say you're right for kind of millennials and Gen Z as well. It's folks want to work on sustainability, but sometimes skill sets or education wise, you're not sure how to crack into it. And what I think we need more of is people understanding that there are so many jobs that are jobs contributing to a more sustainable world, even if the word sustainability isn't in your title. And you're not necessarily doing something directly that feels like waste reduction or water stewardship every single day, right? So that's one of the things that we have been doing in the last couple years. When I stepped into leading this function at Optoro, actually, I told my boss, one of our co-founders, that I wanted more bosses and that what I was envisioning was having a council to report to who would spread the sustainability mission throughout the whole organization. What we ended up doing and what I think is was actually a better kind of insight from my boss or co-founder was to have people who aren't at the tops of the departments but people at various levels throughout mm-hmm. the company coming together on a sustainability committee and or a sustainability council. So we have at least one representative from each department at our company who comes together about once every 6 weeks we set goals together, we check in on progress toward those goals, and we try to embed sustainability in each of our Ah, departments.
1: Cross-functional and also making ambassadors in different units. Exactly. Very smart.
2: The challenge there is that you have an ambassador, but it's usually not the leader of the department. And you need to get the leader on board as well to support those goals. Luckily, My boss is our co-founder, and he supports that mission. (laughs) Not to say that our other department heads don't. They just also have competing priorities. Sometimes things do compete with the sustainability priorities. So it's nice to have that kind of extra drumbeat coming from multiple levels of the company to try to embed it. I won't say that we've cracked the code. There's a lot of improvement I think we can make. And Mm -hmm. I, I do have employees through our company who have said to me at times... Every now and then, hey, I don't feel like my work influences sustainability at all. And it's feeling like I want to do more. And then we sit down and talk and they tell me about what their job is. And I'm like, that's one of our key sustainability values. Do you not see how what you're doing is building this product, which is what our clients use to divert waste from landfill or to use data to make better decisions? And then they're like, wait, that counts as sustainability. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're right. You're spot on. It's kind of the communication piece and the storytelling piece and a little bit of proselytizing, I think yes. that goes into it.
1: Yeah. That's, terrific. That's really really true.
0: I'm it's going to fascinating, I'm going to go a different direction. Sure. Okay. So, we often talk to mid-cap, small-cap companies about creating their first or starting on their sustainability journey. And they want to do a first-time report. From your experience, what would you advise a first-time reporter or a person that is really wants to start their sustainability journey?
2: Ooh, I love that. Well, you are the experts. So I please tell me if I get any of the points right (laughs) on the the essay. Mm -hmm. You know this
0: business, there's no right or wrong here because we're still figuring so much out
2: just like there's yeah
0: yeah but just from your experience and your point of view and that's what's great about this podcast is we get so many different points of view here so
2: yeah i'd say so i'm gonna bring up an exercise that probably many people say and to me what's important about it is the thought processes that go into it not necessarily any fancy graphic that comes out of it but i would say a materiality assessment Mm -hmm. is one of the first places to start and Now, I will say when I came into this company, Optoro, we didn't have a formal one, but we'd kind of already done it. And I did feel that we kind of needed to write it down a little bit better. And I did make a graphic. But for those, luckily, I got to learn how to make those when I was in grad school. Mm -hmm. Um, But a sustainability materiality assessment, understanding what resources, what values within environmental, social, or governance are important to your employees, to your stakeholders, to your customers, to your investors, and where you can make a difference. That's kind of key as what I see a starting point for even getting started.
0: Terrific. Hmm, Great. And I'm going to kind of wrap it up here. But when you look back 10 years, five years, even 10 years, so much has changed and evolved in the past 10 years around, this has become an industry that we are in. Any thoughts, uh, vision about the next five or 10 years?
2: Ooh, I love that. Well, um, vision for the next five years in, I mean, that's a huge question. I'd say my space in, in retail, if you asked me this a year ago, I would have said circular economy is the next big one. Now it has become big, but I actually see, a rise in focus on sustainable fashion and textiles being a huge place where the trends kind of are all right now. I think, you know, in the last number of years, we saw a lot of focus on plastics, single-use plastics. Mm -hmm. We still are finally getting some policies in place or bills proposed. That's a huge area where we still need a lot of work, but in terms of what's making the headlines and what's generating action among people, plastic still, sure, but I am seeing growth in that kind of sustainable fashion, apparel and textile space. I think we need a lot more of it. As we're looking at the rise of digital commerce, we see actually fewer of the younger generation being interested in caring about their sustainable shopping habits. And so what I mean by that is Gen Z caring about sustainability, but then shopping a whole lot more at fast fashion than other generations before them. And so there's a disconnect there that I think we're going to start hitting up against more, even more than we are now. I think We're going to see, this podcast is often about ESG, and I think we're already seeing this boom in ESG hiring. I think we're going to start seeing more accounting standards and policies in that area. We're going to see a lot more regulation of sustainability marketing statements, and I'll probably leave it there. Those are kind of the next things I'm trying to tackle.
0: Fantastic. fantastic. Well, thank you, Megan.
1: Yep. Thank you very much. Makes us think about really important issues.
2: Thank you. And I'm uh, I'll have to hang out with you guys again soon so that you can speak more than I do.
1: We would love that. <laughs> <No>. Yeah, that's <laughs> we what would love you know, that. that's what really this whole thing is about is to hear other people's perspectives. So, but, thank you for being a part of that. And we would love to hang out anytime. Yeah. Maybe we'll do a follow-up show at some point.
2: Oh my goodness, come to DC, we can record live. Wait, no. no you know. I'll come to
1: you.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Terrific. <laughs> Thank you so Greatly much. Greatly appreciated. We'll yep. be in touch. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing.
0: It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com.
1: See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.